Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Guests with us, um, I've invited Dr. Nathan Lorick. He is the executive director of our Colorado Baptist Convention. Uh, he's been in this position for about a year and a half, almost coming up on two years, but he has not had an opportunity to come and share in our church, and so I've asked him to do that, and he's kindly agreed to come and, and share with us, and I know you'll be blessed by Dr. Lorick and um, his message to us, and so I'm so thankful for him coming and sharing with us. So, Nathan, would you come and share with us? Let's give him a round of applause for being with us this morning. Thank you, Pastor. He asked me earlier, you do, you use these all the time. You know how to turn it on? I said, absolutely. And uh, until it comes down to the moment. Hey, it's good to be with you today. And I just, I just want to take a moment and um, tell you, uh, number one, how great of a privilege and honor it is to serve you. Uh, it truly, sincerely is a privilege and an honor, one that our team does not take lightly, that we have the opportunity to come alongside of you and Serve you as you seek to fulfill the great commission that God's called you to here in Sterling. Also want to just take a moment and would be remiss if I didn't to just tell you how much I love your pastor. He is, uh, he's not only your pastor, but he's my friend. And he's one of my favorite guys just to connect with. And uh, I, I, I have the opportunity of traveling all across Colorado and really uh, different parts of the country nearly every Sunday. And I can't say that everywhere. But you guys are blessed with your pastor. And I want you to know that this morning. And uh, I would tell you that if he were here, or since he's here, but if, even if he wasn't here, I would tell you the same thing. He is a man of God, a man of integrity, and you uh, ought to know how blessed you are uh, to have him. You also have a lay person um, in Mickey Dubs that I've gotten a chance to know. And uh, Mickey bravely, bravely led our uh, bylaws team in Baptist. Now, there's only there's one position in Baptist life you don't want, and that's dealing with Baptist bylaws. All right, and uh, he courageously proposed some changes as we're trying to change our organization to better serve you. I can I can promise you, uh, there are a lot of things in your life you would much rather do than lead a Baptist bylaws committee. All right, but uh, I'm so grateful for you, Mickey, and your leadership in that. Thank you for the privilege, and thank you for your partnership here in Colorado. I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 11 this morning. Acts chapter 11 this morning. I told your pastor we had the opportunity to get together for breakfast this morning, and I told your pastor this morning that uh, I arrived in Sterling last night with a message that uh, I was going to share with you, but uh, after I arrived, God just began to work on me, and, and, and really uh, through the, the latter hours of the evening, I just believe God gave me a word for you this morning, and so uh, I, I, just, I just believe that in the midst of our culture, in the midst of all that our nation is going through, there's one thing that needs to begin to happen uh, on an expedited 
uh, timeline for believers and followers in Jesus Christ. You see, we, we look at the news, and it's, it's kind of interesting that we look at the news of, for example, what happened in New York over the last week to 10 days, and as Christians, we are just taken back, and we're just, we can't believe this is happening to our nation. We can't believe that our nation is morally falling apart, and yet, why should we not believe that? The gospel doesn't exist to make light brighter. The, dark, uh, the gospel exists to make darkness light. And so God in his, his uh, mercy has given us the gospel, but yet also he has placed us in a culture, in a context, in his timeline of humanity in which he's also given us the opportunity to expose darkness with the light of Jesus Christ. And you and I as believers, if there's ever something that needs to be expedited in our life, if there's ever something that needs to come to the forefront of our life, it's simply this. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must reposition our lives so that every aspect of our life is to serve for the gospel's advancement in our dark culture. Your family, your occupation, your social life, your financial investments, your, your relational aspects that God's given you in your neighborhood, everything in our life ought to be stewarded in a way that advances the gospel, the light of Jesus in a dark culture. And so and instead of us looking at culture and looking at how our world seems to be falling apart and wringing our hands in fear and, 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 and in anxiousness, maybe, just maybe, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to look at our culture and go, thank you, God, for such an incredible opportunity. You see, because grace exists because perfection does not. We look at our world and it doesn't take long. No one's perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the grace of God, according to uh, Titus, the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of man. You see, all of us, you and I, even as we're believers in Christ, we're followers of Christ, we read scripture, we come to church, we worship, all of us fall short of the glory of God, no more or no less than anyone who doesn't know Christ. You see, that's what makes us on even ground. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what if the church in our nation, the churches in our state, the churches in our communities, instead of looking at the world and going, oh my, what are we going to do? It, 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 it's falling apart. We can't cope. What am I going to do with my kids? What am I going to teach my kids? Instead of looking at it like that, why don't we look at it and go, God, you have given us one of the greatest platforms for the light to expose darkness that the world and humanity has ever known. But I'm afraid some of us are like my son. I have four kids. Uh, uh, their names are any, many, miny, and it because there ain't going to be no mo. I promise you, all right? Uh, seven, nine, 11, uh, and 14. Um, life is busy. And uh, uh, I am learning what it means to parent a teenager. They did not teach me that in seminary. I just want you to know, all right? And. Um, and so it's, it's a constant uh, repentance in my house, and it's generally me repenting before the Lord because I want to uh, 
I, I, I need to deal with my teenager, but my, my oldest son, he can, he's really a good kid. I'm just joking. He's, he and I are really, really close. He's, a, he's an athlete. He's, he's, uh, he's just a really, really good kid. Uh, and then my, my middle son, he's 11. He just turned 11, and he wears a men's size 10 and a half shoe. Fire engine red hair. We call him Opie on steroids, all right? He is off the charts intelligent, and he is a football player extraordinaire. And uh, so if you can pray for me, just pray that he goes to the NFL. I can retire early. And, um, uh, and then my, my youngest son, he is cute. He is mischievous. Um, he is the kind of kid that can get in. He, he, what he does deserves for him to get in trouble. But then he looks at you with some kind of manipulative, cute look, and you just your heart melts like wax. And so, uh, and then we have a daughter that we adopted from Uganda. God gave us the opportunity to adopt a few years ago, and she's our seven-year-old. She's our princess, and uh, we just we our family is complete. Four no more. Well, uh, we were going down the road one day in, a, in, in my wife's Suburban. We were on a road trip, and by the way, let me just say to you this morning, I have found out who my heroes are. It's not politicians, amen? (laughs) It's not athletes. My heroes aren't even preachers. My heroes are those of you who raised your kids without a DVD entertainment system in your vehicle. (laughs) I don't know how you did it. I don't want to know how you did it, all right? We were going down the road, and, and uh, my, my oldest son and my youngest son began to fight and argue. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, mass chaos in the back, back seat. The, the, the volume was elevated, and I happened to look back in the rearview mirror, and I saw my fire engine redhead son. He was sitting uh, there, and, and he had his hands folded, and he was looking out the window, and he was being quiet, and he was not a part of this. And I thought, this is a moment of opportunity for Dad to praise son. And I said, hey, Carter. He said, yeah, Dad. I looked at him in the rearview mirror. He's got big old brown eyes. I said, I want you to know Daddy is so proud of you. He said, Dad, why are you proud of me? I said, because you're being good. He said, Dad, that's my job. I said, well, son, you're doing a great job at your job. Well, about 15 minutes later, that two-man argument became a three-man argument. The volume raised. I had enough. I had turned the radio up as loud as I could. I finally snapped, and I said, Carter. I looked in the rearview mirror. He said, yeah, Dad. I said, I thought you said your job was to be good. He said, it is, Dad, but I've decided to take the day off. <laughs> this morning, I wonder how many of us in our walk with Christ and positioning our lives are postured like my son, that we know what God's called us to do. We know who God's called us to be. We know the mission that God has created us for. We know the very things that we ought to do for the kingdom of God, but yet we've decided to take the day off. We know what the job that he commissioned us for, that he created us for, and that he commissioned us to. We know what it is as a church. We know what it is as a follower of Christ, but yet we just simply decided We're taking today off. I want us to see in Acts chapter 11 a church that had a unique movement of God among them. This this movement was so powerful that this is also the church where we hear that you and I were first identified in a 
in a pagan culture as Christians. This church is not one that we hear a tremendous amount about. This church was, was not one that Paul wrote a letter to. It's not one of the, uh, the, the, the key churches that we would see, but yet tucked in the passage, in the pages of Acts and in the stories of Acts, is this massive movement of God that had multiplying implications, and the gospel advanced in ways in this church that most of our churches have never experienced but only dreamed. And so this morning, I want us just to see four quick things that really characterize the gospel advancement in this church. Beginning in verse 19, talking about the church in Antioch, I want to read through the passage first. It says, now those who had been scattered as a result of persecution that started because of Stephen made their way back away as far as Phoenicia to Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. That's important. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand was on them, or with them. And a large number of uh, uh, who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord and devoted hearts, have devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went down to Tarsus to search for Saul, who we would identify as Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up, and he predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Pay attention to verse 29. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. And they did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. Father, I pray that in the next 15 to 20 minutes, you would take these truths from this church in Antioch, wreck our hearts once again by the gospel and for the gospel. I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, That by the end of our time together in your word, that you would press into our hearts somebody in our life that we need to be a part of the gospel advancing in their life, in this community, through this church, by the power of Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Four simple things this morning. The first thing I want us to understand this morning as we see in the life of this church and the advancement of the gospel of this church is simply this. That there were those who were willing to take risks for the gospel's advancement. Now, I want you to pay attention. First of all, it says that this was a group of scattered people. 
These people were scattered out. It's an interesting statement that, that the writer in, in Acts makes as he's recording this story. The very people he's talking about being scattered by persecution, he refers back to the experience that Stephen had when Stephen was elected a deacon, where it said he was a man of the full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, same, uh, same character traits that Barnabas has talked about in this passage. And yet Stephen was then stoned to death. Now, isn't this interesting? Stephen was stoned to death at the approval of who? Saul, post, uh, uh, pre-Jesus. So Saul, standing back, gives the approval to kill Stephen for his faith. Fast forward five, uh, five chapters. We're now in chapter 11. We know that Saul has been converted. He is not yet named, changed his name to Paul, but he is radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet in Acts chapter 11 in the church in Antioch that has been established, these people are essentially refugees from persecution in the day of Stephen. They're scared. They've seen firsthand the cost of giving your life to Jesus. They've seen firsthand that living your faith out loud is not convenient. It could cost you your life, yes, even giving your life. Therefore, we have two classifications of people in this story that are entering into the church. Both have a desire for the things of God, but yet one group is silent and or, or, or is siloed in their sharing, and one group takes, takes crazy risk with the gospel. Look what happens. Beginning in verse 19, those who've been scattered as a result of persecution that started because of Stephen. They made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Here we have those who counted the cost of proclaiming the gospel boldly and have decided that the cost aren't, uh, aren't the risk aren't worth the possible cost. Now, let's fast forward to our day. The very real truth is. We're not seeing the gospel advance at a rate that the American church has seen in the past. We're not seeing life transformation like the American church has seen before. And one must ask this question. Could it be that Christians in America have counted the cost of bold witness for Christ and decided that the risk is not worth the possible cost? Could it be that we have taken the posture of this first group who says they decided to, to speak the gospel or they decided to, to, uh, that they would speak the word to no one except Jews? In other words, they decided that they did not want to risk sharing the gospel outside of the church. Therefore, they begin, the very first picture here that we see of these people is they begin to, to have an inward focus that says, we're going to stay within the parameters of the body here, and we're not going to be bold in proclaiming the gospel and shining light on the darkness. We're just going to have a holy huddle, the frozen chosen, us four and no more, because we are scared of what it could look like if the 
gospel got outside of these walls, I would submit to you in my years pastoring and in my years in denominational life, as I have literally been in organizations that had uh, 2,700 churches to observe, I would say to you that many churches do not see the gospel advancement in their community because they're more interested in keeping the word within than they are the gospel without. But see, there's a second group here that takes place. You see, there's this group that's counted the cost and realized that the risk is far greater than, uh, the cost is far greater than the risk is worth. So they've said, we're just going to meet together. We're just going to kind of talk it out together and, and, and we'll just trust somebody else to take the gospel. And then there are these men, men that you'll never know their names, men that you'll never hear about again. But men who counted the cost and determined it is worth the risk, even if it cost us everything, like our friend Stephen, it is worth the risk to take the gospel to those who don't know the good news. Listen what it says about them. I love this. But there were some of them. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. You see, my friends, the first picture of the gospel's advancement came through those who were willing to take a risk so that the gospel would advance. Now, I'm not much of a risk taker. I don't... I'm kind of a a creature of habit. People talk talk about going on mission trips all across the world. and Man, they want to try the food from all across the world. No, I go on mission trips. I bring Americans to cook American food. I don't go to restaurants that I've not been to or at least, at the very least, read read the Yelp reviews on. Amen? I don't like taking risks. I don't like risking something because I don't know the outcome, but if it's important enough to me, the outcome outweighs the risk. Here, there's these two group of peoples. There's both followers of Christ, both Christians, but yet one says, we're going to leave it inside the walls, and one said, we're going to risk it all to take it to those who've never heard the good news before. If we had to ask the question today within your own walk with Christ, which one of those groups do you fit in? And I don't doubt anybody loves Jesus. You, know, you love the church. You love to come worship. You, you love to invest in the kingdom of God. It's just you're not going to probably risk taking the gospel to someone who God's given you a relationship with in your community because you're, just, you're afraid of what might happen. Or are you that person that says that those people in my life that God has placed in my life, I love them so much that I couldn't imagine them something happening to them and them not knowing Christ You see, the first thing we see about this church is they were willing to take risk, or there were those that were willing to take risk for the gospel's advancement, and God began to pour out his blessings upon it. The second thing we see is simply this, that God's presence was evident in the gospel's advancement. I love what it says about these men. You'll never hear their names. They're not going to be on plaques anywhere. There's there's no bracelets made with their initials on it anywhere. I mean, these are not the guys you're going to name your church after because you don't even know their name. They were not in it to make a name for themselves. They 
They were not in it to become famous. They were not in it to have a book written about them. They were simply in it so that, uh, that they may share the gospel with those who'd never heard before. And listen what the Word of God says. As they were proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So we understand that for this gospel advancement to take place in Antioch and the regions around, there had to be some who were willing to take a risk and share the good news of Jesus Christ no matter what it cost them. They knew the cost. They had seen it firsthand. One of their friends had died and caused them to be persecuted, leave their homes, lose their materialistic possessions, all of those things in order to, 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 uh, to remain living. They had to flee, but yet now they... They know the cost, and yet these men say it doesn't matter what the cost. The cost is uh, the, the the risk is worth taking because people's eternities hang in the balance. So what does it say? It says the Lord's hand was with them. Hey, let me tell you something, my friends. There's a lot I can do without in my life, but I don't want to do without God's hand on my life. Oh, there's a lot I can do without, but I don't want to do about God, without God's presence being evident in my life. I, I can do without a lot of materialistic possessions. I can do without titles. I can do without promotions. I can do without a lot of things. But, oh, I want people to know when they see me, when they meet me, when we interact, God's hand is on him. I want to live my life like they did in Acts 4 where it said they were unschooled and, and untrained and ordinary men. They didn't, they didn't impress anybody, but they could tell that they had have been with Jesus. I, my friends, want to live my life bold in witness and for, for those people in my life to know that God's hand's upon him. You see, this is what happens in the church. God's presence was evident in the gospel's advancement. It says the Lord's hand was upon them. They took crazy risk for the kingdom. They were not Content with leaving it within the parameters of a wall of the body of Jews, they went to the Gentiles or to the Greeks and they proclaimed the good news of the Lord Jesus and God blessed it. He poured out his blessing. His presence was evident. And how do we know this? Because look what it says. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, first thing we understand about this church and the gospel's advancement is that there were some not all, but some who were willing to take a risk for the gospel's advancement. The second thing we see is that as the gospel began to advance, because of their boldness, God's hand was with them. And as God's hand and his presence was with them, God began to pour out his spirit upon this, these, these men. And people would begin to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They would begin to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. But there's a third thing I want you to see about this story, of, or about this church. The third thing is simply this. Life transformation was the marketing strategy in the gospel's advancement. Oh, my friends. Don't get me wrong, I like social media, but we live in a day that we feel like we have to sell Jesus before we share Jesus. We live in a day that we feel like we have to make the gospel of Jesus Christ so comfortable, so convenient. Can I tell you something today? The gospel of Jesus Christ was never meant to be impressive to us. It was never meant to, 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 to be packaged and sold in a way that impresses us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is messy. 
It takes someone who is lost and, 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 and bound for hell in their sin and in their lostness, and it sends God's Son to a cross to give His life in the most painful, humiliating way, so that as the blood flows from Calvary, so does mercy and grace. It is not impressive, no. The gospel of Jesus Christ is available to us because we are messed up. But yet the church has become guilty of packaging Jesus and selling him like he's our BFF instead of the one who gave his life like a lamb led to the slaughter. Our churches today have become so good at marketing Jesus but not living out the gospel. I'll give you an example. I was um, in my, my former job, I was over evangelism and helping churches develop strategies to take the gospel in their neighborhoods. And I was meeting with a church staff. I'll never forget this. And there was seven of us in the room. We were sitting around a round table. And I said, hey, pastor, just share. What, what is your evangelism strategy? What is the strategy that your people would take their faith and that they would learn how to share it in various contexts and various ways? And then they would go and share the gospel with those who've never heard or those who don't know Christ. And they all around the table begin to say, oh, Man, I, we have created a Sunday morning experience. I don't even know what that means. We've created a Sunday morning experience, and everything we do towards the gospel is pushing people to the Sunday morning experience. We have invite cards that have the sermon series on it. We have uh, the rubber bracelets that have the, the, the name of our church. We have bumper stickers that we put on our window. We even have those yard signs that we put that so-and-so worships here. And, 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 and we have websites and we have all of these things. We have a social media campaign on, on Facebook. And everything is about the sermon series. We just want everyone to bring their friends to church so they can hear the gospel. I said, so let me just get this straight. Everything about the gospel advancement for your church is based upon inviting to church. Yep, that's it. That's what we've created. That's great. Let me ask you a question. This was in Dallas-Fort Worth, by the way. Mega, mega metro center. I said, how many of you, when's the last time? Let's just go around the table. Tell me the last time that you were personally invited to church by somebody you didn't know or even somebody you knew. I haven't been. Never. Can't think of the last time. I lived in Dallas-Fort Worth five years and never one time got invited to church. We went around that table, honest truth, we went around that table there were seven of us. Not one of us had ever been personally invited to church in the middle of Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. I said, Pastor, you see the difference. What you've done is created a clever marketing campaign, but it's not evangelism. It's not the gospel's events. I think you need marketing. I think it's, it's good for people to know your church is here and what you have going on and all of that. There is nothing wrong with that. But do not substitute the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ with the marketing of your church sermon series. 
You see, the truth of the matter is, as we see in this, in this strategy, in this, in this church, life transformation, that was their marketing strategy. People were giving their lives to Christ. Their lives were forever changed. Their eternities were now clear. They now went from being blind to seeing spiritually. They went from being lost to being found. Their life was forever changed. And my friends, might I tell you this? When you get a group of people who are freshly changed by the power of the gospel, you don't need a marketing strategy. You have a group of people that are excited and enthusiastic about the gospel. I have come to learn that the greatest hindrance to the gospel's advancement is tenure in the church. What do you mean? I'm not going to lie to you, man. When I was 17 on fire for Christ, 18 on fire for Christ, I go to college, I want to win the world. Now I just want to make it to church on Sundays. Something happens. We lose our enthusiasm. We lose the unction of the Holy Spirit in our life. And I just came to stop by to tell you today that God, the gospel's advancement, it doesn't need us. God gives us the opportunity to be a part of it. And we have to dig deep in the soul of depths of our heart and soul and find that passion for the gospel we had when we first got saved. You see, the, they didn't put flyers out around Cyprus and Cyrene, Benicia, Antioch, saying, hey, there's a great church now meeting in town. Bring your bread and your candles and get together. Oh, man, it began to expand because life transformation was taking place. Daily, daily. I'm in conversations with churches both in Colorado and around America who simply say, we're not growing like we should. Help us. My dear friends, there's no magic pill. If we want to see a movement of God, the gospel has to advance. And the way that the gospel most advances is that the people changed by the gospel share the very thing that changes them. The way that the gospel advances, the, ways that, the way that our churches grow, the way that our, our, our cities and our communities are changed, it's not by signing petitions or, or these things, they're not bad, but the way we're going to see these things eternally changed and transformed is that God's people who were saved by the power of the gospel would once again tap into that connection they had when they were changed by the gospel and they begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, life transformation was the marketing strategy in the gospels. Now, how do we see this? Look what happens. I love this. The, these men, they share the gospel. They count the cost. They share the gospel. God's hand is with them. His spirit pours out on them. Many people get saved and come to faith in Christ and look what happens news about them reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch when he arrived he saw the grace of God he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts now it says he was a, a, a great man he was full of the Holy Spirit and uh, and of faith and listen to what it says again a second time and large numbers of people were added to the Lord this church in Antioch was not trying to garner the attention of the church in Jerusalem they were just trying to be faithful to take the gospel in their own community but I 
I'm telling you, folks, I'm telling you, when someone who is lost gets radically saved, they can't keep it in them. The problem that I've encountered in my life and perhaps in, in, in your life when we encounter people is we encounter people who got saved and they got over it. Yet this church was so on fire with the gospel. The church in Jerusalem began to say, what's going on there? What is that? I don't know what's going on, but Barnabas, go check it out and come back and tell us. It says that Barnabas goes, and listen to what it says. He saw the grace of God. Church isn't just about speaking it. It's about being a place where the broken can come and experience it. It's about being a place where the broken not only hear the gospel, they see gospel people, broken people, restored people, redeemed people, struggling through life but depending on the Holy Spirit and the gospel for life transformation. It says that he came and he saw the grace of God. Now, this is very interesting what, what, what continues to happen. He says this. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. When they met with the church and taught a large number of disciples, there they were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, now, now understand this picture. Scattered because of persecution, a few said, ah, no, I'm not risking. I've already lost my home. I've already lost my, my, my uh, level of comfort. I'm just going to hang out at the church all day. <laughs> But some said, no, no, we can't do that. The very reason Stephen gave his life was that the gospel would advance. We're going to go talk to the Greeks. We're going to expand beyond the walls. We're going to go take the gospel. God's hand was on them. He poured out his spirit. Many were saved. The church in Jerusalem hears. They send a representative. He not only hears, he sees, and something happens in his life. You know what it says? He says, I can't believe what's happening here. I'm going to go tell somebody about it, and I'm going to bring them to see it. Oh, my friends, do you see what's happening here? The Spirit of God is moving in such a way that it cannot be contained in the heart of man. Listen to what happens. Barnabas goes all the way to Tarsus. He finds Paul. Paul, Saul at the time, man, you got to come check this out. The people that scrambled because of your evilness before Christ, there's a revival happening in Antioch. And Paul, the very evil that you lived before Christ has spurred a movement of God, and you got to come check it out. Now, it doesn't record this at this specific part, but can you imagine how nervous the people in Antioch must have been when they saw Saul? Round two. Can you imagine those few men who took a risk? Uh-oh. We counted the cost, and now it looks like we're going to have to pay the cost. Here's what I love. You ready for this? I got to land a plane. I'm telling you, I'm getting so excited here because I, I just believe God wants to do something. Hey, listen to me. Paul comes. He doesn't do an overnight stay and say, man, that was awesome. What happens? Paul and Barnabas stay for an entire year. Now, how would that work today's world? We're, we're control freaks. We like to have the whole plan, and we have a five-day vacation. We're back in our bed. How does it work to go somewhere and go, we're not leaving this place? I'll tell you how it works. 
When you're in a move of God like that, you're scared to leave it because you may never experience it again. My wife and I, when we stopped being a pastor, or when I stopped being a pastor, I should say, we had to visit churches. By the way, if you're just, that's hard. If you're a guest here for the first time, God bless you. I know it's hard. It's awkward. At least they have good parking places for you. We'd walk in these churches. My wife knew I was going to the front row or the second row. And she said, Nathan, we're just a guest. We're supposed to sit on the second to the back row. Oh, no. She said, well, why do you always make me sit on the front three rows? And I used to say to her this, because if the Holy Spirit only decides to go three rows deep, I want to be a part of it. <laughs> you see, Paul and Barnabas Saul and Barnabas, they go to this place, and the movement of God is so real. Lives are being changed so dramatically, so rapidly, that they say, we want to be a part of this. My dear friends, I don't know you from Adam, but what if the Spirit of God were moving so much in Sterling that when people walked in this place, they said, we can't do anything else but be in the presence of God here. They didn't need a marketing strategy. Life transformation was the marketing strategy. So much that Barnabas is sent. He comes and sees. He comes and experiences. He runs to get Saul. You can't believe what's happening here. They go here. God is moving. We're not leaving. And then there's a fourth thing, and, and we won't tarry long on this, but we see that a prophet comes in town. He begins to talk about a, a famine that's going to take place. Look what it says. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who live in Judea. You see, because the gospel was working in the hearts of both Jews and Greeks, because the gospel was moving and advancing, because the Holy Spirit was evident in that place, because it was drawing people from all over to experience this movement of God, they did not have to have a capital campaign to meet needs. The fourth thing I want you to understand is that there was an intentional engagement Intentional engagement of needs was the result of the gospel's advancement. So Nathan, what, what is it you're trying to say today? I'm saying to you that the gospel is still as powerful today as it was in Antioch. Could it be in our state that God may just be looking for a people who are willing to take risk for that gospel advancement? Could it be that as we take risks for the gospel, that the Spirit of God comes and visits us afresh and anew. Could it be that God begin, could begin moving in, in churches all across our state, including this one, in ways that maybe we've never seen before or haven't seen for years? Could it be that God's Spirit could give us a, 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 a fresh wind and a fresh uh, fire of revival in our hearts and in our communities simply because we say we want to be intentional with sharing the gospel, meeting needs, and letting the gospel advance through our you see, every one of our lives, there are people in your life right now that do not know the hope of Jesus Christ. Every one of us has somebody. We have that one. The greatest thing that we can do is commit to the Lord that, God, we're going to be willing, available, and ready 
to engage them with the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Think about that one person. Let me ask you this question. Do you love them? Do you really love them? Do you believe that there's a literal heaven for believers? I hope you do. Do you believe that those who don't know Christ, if something happens to them when Jesus comes back or they die, they will spend eternity separated from the presence of God if they don't know Christ? Do you, do you really believe that? If you do, then how much must we hate them to not share the gospel with them? My wife and I will soon celebrate 17 years uh, in March and uh, of, of being married. And, uh, man, I, we met in college, and I knew that I wanted her to be my wife. So I saved up, and I bought a ring, and I went and showed it to all her friends to make them jealous. And then I put it in the bank safety deposit box. We were like, uh, maybe I was a sophomore in college at the time. Saved up, I was working four jobs, how's this for you? I was, I was an RA in the dorm, I was a youth minister, I sold cars on, on, uh, on Saturdays, and I worked at a funeral home picking up deceased bodies at night. I mean, just kind of a crazy, eclectic way. But I wanted this girl to be my wife, and the only way to get that ring was to work. I put it in a safety deposit box, and I began to write out how I was going to ask her to marry me, and I wrote it out, and I practiced it in front of the mirror a thousand times, and it was going to be awesome. And I planned the day it was going to happen. I, I went, and I asked her dad's hand in marriage. We were at her house for something, and, and she lived in San Antonio, and we were about six hours away at college, and we were on a weekend trip, and, and I knew I needed to ask him, and I like could not get her away from me. And I, so I had one brief moment of, of opportunity. He was washing dishes. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. He is a man of few words, and he was washing dishes, and I just I had my brief moment, and I said, I love your daughter. I want to honor your daughter. I want to marry your daughter. I want your permission. He looked up at me and here's what he said. Good for you. And he put his hands down and that was it. <laughs> Never said another word. That was all I needed. So I planned the date. Spring break. Her birthday fell on Thursday of spring break. We decided to go to San Antonio for spring break. In San Antonio, there's a restaurant that, that rises up and spins real slowly. And I was going to take her there on her birthday. And as we were going to be spinning slowly way up in the air in front of the, with her city in the background, I was going to get out on one knee, embarrass her in the restaurant, and ask her to be my wife. We were driving down Highway 31 that goes from East Texas down to San Antonio, and I said to her, sweetheart, I cannot wait until Thursday. I'm taking you on a date for your birthday, and I'm telling you, I've got the best gift you could ever have. Now, I know you ladies are thinking about a ring. I was talking about me, all right? <laughs> and she said, Nathan, we can't go out Thursday. Remember, uh, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> I don't know if there's any single ladies in here. I'm going to give you a little word of advice that will carry you for all of your life. Are you ready for this? This is life-changing. Men don't have a plan B. <laughs> Just so you know. I've been planning this for months. I didn't know what to do. I was like, Fine. I'm not giving you your gift. I later found out she thought I was going to give her a lamp for her birthday. How lame is that? 
I'm not giving you a gift. She said, oh, just give it to me now. I'm not giving you a gift. I'll just give it. I'm not giving you a gift. And we would argue for about 10 miles. Ladies, uh, uh, number two, life lesson. There is a line in a man's mind and heart. If you push him above the, uh, past that line, there is a point of no return. Men, can I get an amen? <laughs> so after about 10 minutes, I just had enough. I said, forget it. Fine, I'll give it to you now. I pulled over, the next thing I could find, the next holiest place I could find was a church parking lot. Pulled on the side of the road into a church parking lot. It was graveled. It wasn't even uh, uh, paved. It was graveled. I got out. I walked to the back of her Mustang, popped the hood, got in my bag, went to get the, the lamp out and uh, the ring out, and, and, and I got it. And I walked to the side of her car, and everything I had rehearsed for months escaped me. <laughs> Gone. And I opened the door, and I got on one knee with that ring. And I looked at my bride-to-be in the eyes. And before I could say anything, she says, don't do this here. <laughs> yep. You can't win. So that's why I tell that story. Because I'm going to ask you to do something in a minute I know you're probably not accustomed to and church. I'm going to ask, ask you to do it perhaps after we end. We won't have a formal invitation towards it. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be done. Your pastor will come up. Somehow we'll be dismissed. And See, I'm going to ask you before you leave today that you would come just for a moment and get on your knees before the Lord at the altar and just say to God, there's a person in my life that you put in my life for a reason. Oh God, I don't want to hold the gospel within. I don't want to just talk about it with church people. I want to take a risk this week with the gospel. I will tell you this. Right now, the enemy's telling you you don't have time. You're supposed to be somewhere. Else. You're not supposed to do this. You're hey, listen to me. This is a God moment. That was a moment for my wife and I. And she said, don't do this here. That's exactly what the enemy's doing for this God moment for you. Don't do this here. You got stuff to do. You got places to be. You got more important things to do. But I'm telling you, listen to me. God has someone in your life that he purposefully put in your life. So that the gospel can advance. It's not your responsibility to win them to Christ. It is your responsibility to share the good news of Christ. So in just a moment after we end today, I'm just going to challenge you. It's up to you. It's between you and the Lord if he's prompting you. But your God moment, listen, the enemy's going to tell you, don't do this here. But understand this. What if that prayer is the only prayer anyone's ever prayed for that lost person in your life? Oh, my friends. What we desperately need is a group of men and women who would position their hearts so that every aspect of their life is about the gospel's advancement. And when God finds that group of people, I can only imagine like he found them here, he will pour out his spirit on them like he did in Antioch. And it will spread rapidly uncontrollably, and the only person that could get glory is our God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I just pray all over this room, God, you begin to put one person deep in our heart, that God, you would not let us rest well until we have that gospel conversation, because we, 
we must exhibit our love to them by sharing your love for them. God, give us boldness. God, there could be cost associated with the risk for us. But God, what about the cost associated with the risk for those who don't know Christ? The very cost could be they never hear the gospel. Give us a boldness. Pour out your spirit on us. May your hand be with us like it was these in Antioch. And may you move afresh in our hearts. May we not take the day off, but may we seize the moment that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. The praise team.